To celebrate Black History, The Post and Courier is presenting a series of podcasts and video interviews featuring 12 dynamic South Carolina leaders to know. We talk to people from all over the state about their efforts to advance social justice, celebrate black culture, address community needs, and create a better world. Our podcasts and videos will be released monthly through January 2022. To learn about South Carolina's pantheon of social justice warriors, go to postandcourier.com slash blackhistory. Join us in learning about our state's remarkable change agents. For over 150 years, Claflin University has been the choice of thousands of students to help them prepare for a life of success and to realize their dreams. Claflin has an amazing reputation of preparing a workforce here in the South Carolina region and globally. We know that your experience here at Claflin will be transformational. The university has many articulation agreements with international institutions of higher education. Consider Claflin University as your choice because the world needs visionaries. Today, we welcome Robert Greene II. Professor Robert Greene, how are you? Good day, welcome. Thank you for joining us. Uh, I'm fascinated by your career. I, I know people in academia, and uh, so I know a little something about how it works, uh, the pros and the cons, both. <laughs> we can talk a little bit about that probably bore our viewers to tears if we do, but, um, but first tell me a little bit about you, who you are and what makes you tick. Where did you grow up? Sure thing. So uh, first off, thanks for having me this afternoon. Uh, I, Pleasure. I actually grew up in Augusta, Georgia, so not far from here. Not far. Um, both my parents are originally from Georgia as yeah. well. Uh, my father was in the Army, and uh, so we moved around for a bit, but ended up in Augusta. Um, and really, growing up in Augusta, my parents really instilled in me an appreciation for reading and also for history. So my father would take me to what was called Hamilton's Bookstore in Augusta. It was a black owned bookstore. Mm -hmm. And whenever he'd take me there, I would see all these wonderful books about black history, black art, black culture, something that in the early 1990s, you really had to go out of your way to find. Um, there was no internet, which might be a surprise to some of your viewers. Right, uh, not yet. <laughs> you know, not yet at least. Um, but some will say the good old days, I suppose. But uh, nonetheless, it was that love of, of writing and history from the get-go that really, I think, laid the foundation for my path to where I am today. And what about your parents? Why, why was this so important to them and to your father in particular? Yeah, so, you know, both my parents were avid readers, still are. Uh, they still read the morning newspaper, for example. Do they uh, read your stuff? Uh, yes, they do, actually. Oh, and they're, they're always pretty happy when they see my stuff happy. out as well. They don't, like, fault you for anything? Do they ever complain? <laughs> no, not at all. <laughs> Robert, I can't believe you wrote that. What were you thinking? Uh, no, I haven't I had that, that moment quite yet, okay, thankfully. Um, but both my parents, they, they really, they were both in families that also instilled love of education, love of, of reading and writing and such. And so when I was growing up, they both felt that it was important that I read constantly and voraciously. And they could tell from a very young age that I was the kind of kid who who loved to read. And so they said, well, we'll lean into this. It could be right. worse habits and worse hobbies to have. So they really, really pushed me to, to continue that and, and go forward. With you it. showed at an early age a proclivity toward books and reading and intellectual activity. Like they knew you were a smart kid, I guess. Right exactly. Away, yeah. Which is also why, you know, today 
I, I still love reading and writing. There are times where I wish I worked on my jump shot a bit more as a kid, but yeah. I digress. Okay, well, <laughs> we all have to make decisions, you know, the fork in the road. What about um, things you like to read? So, I, I mean, as a kid, but also now, like, what do you love to read? Well, I, I think it's, it's really important to note that I, I don't just love reading history, um, although that's a lot of what I read today for obvious reasons. I also love reading a lot of fiction. Uh, I love reading works by, for example, James Baldwin, um, Octavia Butler. I love a great deal of science fiction overall. Yes, um, right. And, and <laughs> I know that about you. You're a Trekkie or something. Yes, right? exactly. Yeah, I'm yeah, a huge a Star Trek, Trek fan. Yeah. Uh, and that's no offense to the Star Wars fans out there. I love that too. but. Trek is my first love yeah. science fiction-wise. Well, Trek is the better metaphor for our existence today, you know, so society, right? Uh, very much so, yeah. yes. Yeah. Yes, and, and so I really, I read a lot of different kinds of fiction, um, mainly because I like to think, well, what kind of world could we have if X, Y, or Z happened? Okay. And I think that actually affects my thinking as a historian, because looking at the past, I think we often get hung up on what actually happened as opposed to what could have happened. And if you think about that latter question, it then pushes you to think, well, these are actual real flesh and blood human beings making decisions for better or for worse. Right, interesting, okay. So you apply a somewhat theoretical approach to the work you do. Uh, sometimes, yes. And I think really my love of fiction reading pushes me to also think about, well, how do I view this event in history from the point of view of everyday people, okay. people on the ground, that kind of thing. You even dabbled in fiction writing, or maybe more than dabbled in fiction writing, right? I mean, you've, you've written fiction. Yes, uh, well, so in college, in undergrad, I was actually a creative writing major. Right. And okay. my specialty was actually fiction writing. Um, unfortunately, the, the- You imagined you would become a- I had, I had hoped so, and I, and I hope someday to get back to that. Um, I've been a bit sidetracked in the last decade with a thing called academia, yeah. <laughs> and writing nonfiction, but I, I think, Writing fiction actually helped me think about history in, in a broader sense. For example, my first fiction story in college that I wrote, I got published at Georgia Southern, which, which, which is where I went for my BA, uh -huh. was actually a story that I titled Hellfighter, which was after the Harlem Hellfighters who fought in World War I, an all-black regiment that fought in the war, and it was all about a black soldier who fought in the war, survives the war in France, and then comes home and is actually lynched in his uniform. And the story was a way for me to tell a piece of history while using the creativity of fiction. And that's something I would like to get back to someday. Yeah, I mean, the, the, some, of the, some of the historical fiction sometimes seems to be the most effective in a way because it's rooted in reality. And yet the novelist has an opportunity to kind of a certain creative freedom and flexibility, I suppose, to yes. find the important themes and to drive home those themes without always strictly adhering to the historical record. You know, exactly. you have a certain liberty, I guess, with that. Yeah, mm. interesting. So, um, okay, so you succeeded and excelled in your academic life as a kid and a teenager and so on and so forth. You got your bachelor's degree and eventually got a PhD. Where did, where did you go for your PhD? The University of South Carolina. Ah, what do you know? <laughs> We're standing very nearby. It's just over there, you know. Exactly. Yeah, it's right there, a stone's throw. And did you enjoy it? Yes, you know, I, I think our PhD program at USC 
was very influential on me, not just because of the classes, but more so because of my fellow students and the faculty that are there. Yeah. Um, a lot of folks, I think, know USC's history department primarily for the work it does in Columbia and about South Carolina. Yeah. But there were a lot of people there, both faculty and students, who specialized in the history of slavery, history of civil rights, the history of the South, history of African-Americans. And it's really those experiences that, that really shaped my academic career. I think a lot of people view academia through the lens of what we as academics publish, uh, what we as academics say at conferences or public events. Yes. But amongst academics, what really shapes us is our personal interactions with each other. Mm -hmm. Say, for example, hey, could you read this for me? Or did you hear about this new book? Or what do you think about this idea that I have? Yeah. And those kinds of things really shape me at USC. Yeah, it's an opportunity really to engage with other minds. Exactly. And which then broadens your own mind, I mean, which is the whole idea of the college experience anyway, both for students and faculty, I suppose, to have access to these resources and to develop these ideas. Yes. yes. Okay, so I have a, a pointed political question oh. for you because it's an ongoing debate about representation um, and uh, amplification, amplifying black voices and representation and so on and so forth. What do you think about this uh, notion, this problem, this question of diversity? What do you think of white scholars who might get a PhD in African American history? Is that legitimate? How, how do you conceive of the, or a white journalist like me writing about African American history or even the contemporary African American experience? There's, a, there's an ongoing debate about this right now, and I'm curious to know what you think. You know, I actually think that, at least to me, it doesn't matter what your racial or ethnic background is. What really matters is, will you actually put in the work to study these people effectively? So take African-American history, which was asked about for a second. It doesn't matter to me if, if white people study it or other people study it. Actually, I, for me, the more the merrier. Mm -hmm. I, I think... As, as long as we can get people in African-American history who are genuinely invested in the project of African-American history, which means not just a question of representation, but a question of, can we actually get other Americans to understand the centrality of African-Americans to our national story? That's what really matters to me. I do understand the consternation behind this because I think some of it relates to the fact that there are so few academic jobs and there's a sense of, well, if you're a, a white scholar who goes into African-American history, then... You're filling a spot that might... Yes, exactly. Or you might be trying to, to game the system with what's hot right now. But there are many white scholars in the history of African-American history who have who really did put in the work. I think yeah. of folks like Herbert Apthecker, for example, or Patricia Sullivan at USC right now. These, are, these and many other individuals have actually done the work of not just studying African-American history, but treating it with the kind of care and sincerity it deserves. And so that's what really matters to me. It seems to me that there's really an upward trend in that way in terms of taking this topic very seriously. Mm -hmm. um, if anything, more and more people are taking the topic more and more seriously, uh, both in academia and in journalism and in else elsewhere as, as well. It's really become a kind of very important topic that you know, people acknowledge is very important, even central, as you're saying, as it should be. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so you get your PhD, 
And then you get an appointment at Claflin in yes, Orangeburg. That's right. Okay, tell me about Claflin. Claflin is, has been uh, doing pretty well in recent years. How do you like it there? Yeah, so, you know, I think it's been interesting for me working at Claflin because my previous institutions, Georgia Southern and South Carolina, of course, were what we call in academia predominantly white institutions, PWIs. But Claflin being a historically black university has a different kind of mission, and you feel it the second you step on campus. This is really the case with, with virtually all HBCUs, the sense of we are not just here to educate people, but we are here to uplift people as well. Yeah. So most of my students at Claflin, for instance, are first-generation college students. They're the first in their families to go to college, and you can tell at times talking to them they have the weight of their families on their shoulders to, to really advance the family, get them uh, to a new level of, of standard of living, that kind of thing. But more importantly, I think the Claflin story actually ties into what I actually researched. The fact that the university was founded in 1869 during the Reconstruction period. Uh, the fact the university has weathered so many different challenges and crises from Reconstruction to Jim Crow segregation to the present day. Um, my department chair has been talking a lot about how if we can weather those things, we can survive COVID-19, that kind of thing. But being at Claflin has really been an enriching experience because of the history of that campus and because of the pride that many of the faculty and staff have being at Claflin. So for those who might not know, Claflin and South Carolina State University share uh, a larger campus. They're separate universities. Claflin is private yes. and South Carolina State is public, but they're together and the students interact and they cross. Oh, very much so. And in fact, the building I'm based in, which is the chapel building on Claflin's campus, um, SC State's campus is right across the fence from my building. So okay. we'll sometimes just walk through it to go to, go to SC State. But do you ever throw water balloons uh, out the uh, window? I have never done that. Your colleagues on uh, the other side. <laughs> I've never done that, you but it, think about that. I, I will think about it. Yeah. Uh, certainly it wouldn't liven the daily experience yeah. of being at Claflin. But uh, the thing about our two universities is that we do have a, a shared history in a lot of ways. Yeah. Uh, SC State's actually on land that once belonged to Claflin in the late 19th century. Um, and I think even to this day, for both universities, there is a shared sense of responsibility towards our students, towards our alumni, to continue our mission. And I really think for folks at Claflin especially, there is always this sense that there's more work to be done. Yeah. Uh, we're, we're bringing in higher enrollments every single year, but those enrollment numbers don't matter unless we're able to continue to give our students the kind of attention that they deserve and, they, and that they need. You know, you mentioned that uh, many of your students are first-generation college students, and to hear that saddens me a little bit in the sense that that was the case the previous generation mm -hmm. and the generation before that and even before that you know during the activism on campus in the 1960s when the students at South Carolina State and Claflin became very involved in the civil rights movement many of those students were first generation exactly. you know and at what point do you break that cycle and get a second and a third generation and now you have African-American families that are actually entering into the middle class and you know able to access the levers of power so to speak it still seems to be a little a little bit like Sisyphus pushing the rock up the mountain you know well I, I think the Sisyphus analogy is a great one that that kind of summarizes African-American history in a nutshell uh, but I, I take solace in the fact that while things could be better, 
things are always being improved. And I want to make it clear to viewers especially that this improvement isn't automatic. And this ties back to my, how I study history. It's not that history gets is the story of things getting progressively better and better every single generation. History is the story of people making sure things get better generation, generation, generation. Otherwise... Or sometimes failing to do so. Failing to do so, exactly. Otherwise, there are other forces in our society that are always trying to push back, especially on, on black advancement and black freedom. And I think places like Claflin are symbols of we have a lot of work to do, the job is not yet finished, but these are the places that will help us get to where we want to go as a people and as citizens within the United States. And they present a broader symbolism of black empowerment. Precise. And self-determination. Yes. Uh, you know, I, I've talked to lots of people about the, the black power movement, which is still to this day widely misunderstood, I think. Definitely. You'll probably agree. And central to the black power movement was really this concept of self-determination. Like, okay, we can't always trust white society to be there with us on this. So we're going to have to do this ourselves. We're going to have to take the bull by the horns. And so you had all this activity at HBCUs. There were protests at HBCUs, including yours and South Carolina State, to diversify those campuses or to... Uh, fight for contracts with black companies exactly. to do the work on campus. Why are all these white people involved after all? So there was this sense, uh, and black studies itself gained traction during that period. Uh, African American studies programs were far and few between until the 60s. Yes, and I mean, I think to your point, most folks may misunderstand the idea that at HBCUs we had to fight for African American studies, but that was very much the case because again, as you mentioned, a lot of students at these schools, they went to these schools and in fact, they still go to HBCUs today because of the desire to be at a place that is as black operated, that is black run, not in a sense of wanting to separate from mainstream society, but in a sense of wanting to say, hey, this is a place, a citadel of learning I can come back to that will be safe. That's a place I can trust, a place I can believe in. And for our students today, it's important to note that enrollments at HBCUs have actually been on the rise the last few years because of a sense that American society has begun to turn its back on black achievement, on black freedom and black advancement. And HBCUs are the only place that many youngsters feel still stands for what they want to believe in. There's even been a little bit of a trend at the national level to provide a little bit more support now to HBCUs. I've read the Biden administration, I don't I'm, I forget exactly what the details are, but there does seem to be an effort here and there. Need ideas for your next family reunion? Use the Green Book of South Carolina's Family Reunion Toolkit. The toolkit offers exceptional experiences like pre-planned day trips and suggestions for exploring South Carolina's rich heritage. Explore your roots at African-American cultural sites selected by the African-American Heritage Commission for a reunion you'll never forget. To plan your family reunion now, now visit FamilyReunionSC.com. That's FamilyReunionSC.com to get started. Okay, so the other place you teach at is right here in Columbia, the Majeska Simpkins School. Mm -hmm. uh, tell us about the school, its mission, and what you do there. Sure, so the Majeska Simpkins School of Human Rights was founded a few years ago uh, by the South Carolina Progressive Network. And essentially the school's goal is to train activists or just curious citizens about the history of South Carolina. But in this case, it's what we refer to as a people's history. So not so much emphasizing 
uh, the John C. Calhouns or the Ben Tillmans or the Strom Thurmonds, although they are, of course, in the narrative, but really emphasizing the struggles of indigenous peoples, African-Americans, women, LGBTQ individuals and the like, and trying to push people to rethink the history of this state that I think outside of the state is often seen as a history of conservatism, of reaction. But in fact, within South Carolina, there is a long history of resistance, yeah. of progressive thought, of radical thought. And our school really emphasizes that. Our ultimate goal is by the end of the school, whether you're an activist or just a concerned citizen, you have the tools and the ideas to be able to understand how this state can be pushed in a different direction, a more open, inclusive direction for all. So you're, you're providing these tools to students, uh, adult students and whoever Mo wants to sign up, right? Mostly adults. And, and I would say that it's not so much that I am providing the tools as I am helping them to open the toolbox that's already available to them. Because many of the students, when they come to our school, they already know what the school's about. They're already curious about the history of the, of the Palmetto State. They're there with a purpose. Exactly. They are there with a purpose already. Uh, my, my job is to simply help them to get the readings done, to foster classroom discussion, to really think critically about the kind of history they've learned up to this point. Many of our students are natives of South Carolina. They are from South Carolina. And so they'll tell me, well, why did I learn this in third grade or in eighth grade or in 12th grade? And I tell them, well, like everything else, education has a history, education has a purpose. And depending on who's doing the educating, who's in charge of it, you may learn different things about South Carolina that you may not learn right. elsewhere. So that's also a big part of our school as well. Interesting. So, um, so for example, uh, you have a classroom there and what do you talk about? What texts do you cite and uh, uh, what, what, how, how do the students sort of leave the classroom? What are they thinking about in their heads? Sure. So um, some of the texts we include often draw from scholarly articles about the history of the state of South Carolina, uh, some various books like Books on the Orangeburg Massacre by Jack Bass, uh, the book on Ben Tillman by Stephen Kantrowitz, for example, is a really good one. My uh, book, Outside Agitator, you, you use Well, that, yes, course, actually, yeah. we, we, are, oh. we are using that as well. Really? Oh. I mean, we, 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 we try to draw upon a, a wide range of books and articles to, to give a more complete picture of the past. Um, especially, I, I know you mentioned your book sort of in a joking manner, but I think a lot of folks need to understand that the history of the civil rights movement in South Carolina is not that long ago. Uh, we tend to view it on television through the eyes on the prize documentary yeah. as a series of white and black images or, or footage. But a lot of these folks like Cleveland Sellers and many others, they are still with us today. Um, sure. I point out to my students, I have folks in my family who attended segregated schools when they were kids. Yeah. So this isn't that long ago. No. But we often draw upon a wide range of, of articles and of books to tell the most complete story possible. And part of our school's mission is to actually provide the students a, a more thorough reading list. We can't get to everything in every single class, but what we try to do is to allow for the class to be a forum for discussion, a forum to talk about some of these big ideas yeah. about not just South Carolina, but how the state of South Carolina has influenced the nation and indeed the world. And people underappreciate this yes. because, you know, you said it's not that long ago, but it's also longer ago back than we even always acknowledge. You know, the state of South Carolina has produced activists, uh, social justice activists for decades and decades and decades. I mean, it was really the 1940s and 50s after World War II 
and up until this sort of heroic period of the phase of the of the civil rights movement with the uh, Brown v. Board and all of that, where when the uh, integrationist phase started. But during the 40s, the NAACP was fighting all those lawsuits and you know, Briggs and and you know Isaac Woodard and all these, th and that was all really critical to setting the stage. Yeah. And people don't fully realize, and South Carolina was right <laughs> at the middle of it all. Well, and I think you're, you're precisely right. I think the class that gets the most attention from students in terms of, wow, I didn't know that, is the class where we cover the 1946 and 1954 period. There we go. That, that brief post-World War II era, right up to Brown v. Bolt, where we yeah. talk about the Briggs v. Elliott case, where we talk about Isaac Woodard, where we discuss in 1944, the Progressive Democratic Party's attempt to seat black delegates at the Democratic National Convention. We talk about these things and a lot of students aren't aware of them because again, our national narrative of civil rights tends to begin with either Brown v. Board 1954 or Emmett Till or the Montgomery bus boycott. And we tend to ignore what was happening up to that point. For example, my students are always enthralled when I show them the text of W.E.B. Du Bois' speech, Behold the Land, yeah. that he gave right here in Columbia at the Township Auditorium in 1946. A speech that really showcased how he and other activists felt the Deep South was going to be at the heart of a global movement for justice, not just against Jim Crow segregation in the South, but against fascism and tyranny exactly. all over the world. Which is so fascinating because, you know, by the middle 60s, the civil rights organizations like SNCC in particular, uh, but many of the others, were looking well beyond America's borders mm -hmm. and forging alliances both within the country uh, and outside of the country and, and plugging into this larger global movement. And people don't realize that decades before, these same issues, these same ideas already were discussed. There was already a lot of discussion about economic justice, not just integration. There was already a lot of discussion about internationalism and, and the freedom movement more broadly and being part of that. So it's, uh, there's still a lot to learn, I think, quite a lot to learn. And I would even add to that, I, I'll tell my students both at Claflin and in the Majestic School for Human Rights that people of African descent in South Carolina have always thought globally. You go back to the era of enslavement, for instance. You have enslaved Africans here in South Carolina who during the colonial period are looking south towards Florida, which is owned by Spain, and saying, hey, we can make it there, we're actually gonna be free. Um, you have the enslaved during the Civil War thinking about the fact that they're, they're part of a larger struggle against slavery. And so what I think folks have to understand, whether you're, you're black or white or whatever your ethnicity or race is, if you live in South Carolina, you live in a state that has always been at the center of these much bigger debates about freedom, democracy, justice, and equality. Debates that aren't just important to Americans, but are important the world over. For example, uh, in 1968, Freedom Ways Magazine, a, a left-wing publication that was around for about 24 years, that year in the spring, they ran a tribute issue, first for W.B. Du Bois, who would have turned 100 that year, but then it turned to a tribute to MLK, who had been assassinated right before the issue went to press. If you open up that magazine, within a couple of pages, you see an insert that's uh, titled Memoriam to the Martyrs. At the top, it has the names of five men who were uh, executed in Rhodesia for resistance to the white supremacist government there. But the second half is the names of the three men who were killed in the Orangeburg Massacre. So again, 
These folks were linking what happened in Orangeburg, what was going on in Africa, and saying we are all part of a shared struggle. South Carolina has always been part of a shared history of global human rights. There we go. So true. Um, okay, well, finally, I just want to get a sense of um, uh, your popular writing. You've been writing for a lot of uh, magazines in recent years on a lot of different topics, not just race or African-American history, like Star Trek, for example. Did you write an article about Star Trek? <laughs> uh, actually, a couple, yes. A couple? Yeah. Well, tell us about that. Well, okay, so I, 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 one of the things that I always enjoy writing about is how popular culture reflects history. Yeah. And with Star Trek in particular, I, I think a lot of viewers know about Star Trek's long history of being diverse, of having black characters like Uhura or Ben Sisko and DS9 and the like. Um, in 2015, I wrote an article for The Atlantic magazine about an episode of Deep Space Nine, Star Trek Deep Space Nine, called Past Tense, where the characters travel back in time to the year 2024, which is now only three years away. <laughs> I know, it's and crazy. what but... made the article such a unique experience for me was that the episode itself reflected in the 1990s fears about homelessness, poverty, where the nation was headed in terms of not addressing those issues. And yet I found myself in 2015 say, thinking, you know, we really haven't addressed these issues in the last 20 years, and we're getting close to 2024. And the irony of the episode is that Star Trek fans have noted, the closer we get to 2024, unfortunately, the more realistic the episode appears, where you have folks being huddled in what are called sanctuary districts, where the poor are being forced to, to, to live there outside the view of everyone else, how the United States is struggling with poverty, with economic inequality, etc. And so I wrote about this because being a huge Star Trek fan growing up, I love the starships, I love the technology, I love the science fiction, but I also love the morality tales that were behind those stories too. And so when I write about Star Trek, I tend to talk about that. I've, I've written articles since for StarTrek.com about Benjamin Sisko, the black captain from Deep Space Nine, and his relationship to black history in America specifically, because okay. he used metaphor, or allegory to talk about race in America, Ben Sisko being played by Avery Brooks, being a black character, is talking about these issues directly. He's transported back in time to 1950s, for example, has to confront race there, that kind of thing. Right. And so I think it's Star Trek's power is in the fact that it can tell so many different kinds of stories. Contemporary that can, stories. Contemporary stories yeah. that can appeal to many different audiences. Yeah. Amazing, yeah, terrific. Well, okay, on that note, I guess I'll let you go back to doing all the things you have to do. I know you have research to do and articles to write and both popular and scholarly and courses to prepare. How is the, the pandemic affecting your teaching? Well, right now at Claflin, we are at a, in a hybrid model of teaching where some of us are in person. Most of our students are online via Zoom. So uh, when I go to Claflin, I will teach in a classroom with maybe two or three students in the room with me and most of the students coming in via Zoom. Uh, now, the thing about the pandemic is that it has forced academics to find new ways to collaborate. So we're having many more Zoom meetings than we ever had before, which is both a plus and a minus. Okay, yeah. But it, it has certainly made life really interesting. I, I'm not sure. You don't altogether hate it. Well, I don't, I don't hate it. I, I will say for conferences, it's been a, a useful thing because yeah. conferences people have been able to attend that couldn't go before. But it has been an experience that makes us value the importance of person-to-person -person interactions. Because I will say, although I want my students to stay safe, to stay safe I do miss them. 
Uh, and there is nothing quite like the energy of students in the classroom when you're talking about a topic from black or American history. Yeah, for sure. Well, on that note, um, thank you so much for joining us in person. Uh, Robert Green, it's been a pleasure talking with you. Congratulations on all the work you're doing and thank all you. the good work to come, of which I know there will be much, 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 much. Thank you so much. Yes, good to have you. Thanks. Thanks. 12 Black Leaders to Know is a special series of The Post and Courier, produced by Chris Zeller, with interviews conducted by Adam Parker, and video production by Matthew Crum. Thank you to our sponsors, Bank of America, College of Charleston Master of Business Administration, South Carolina Governor's School for the Arts and Humanities, Claflin University, Nephron Pharmaceuticals, South Carolina Whitmore School, Ingevity, South Carolina Buy Black Locally, Trident Technical College, and Middleton Place. To learn about South Carolina's pantheon of social justice warriors, visit postandcourier.com slash blackhistory. At the College of Charleston, we're a collection of visionaries, disruptors, rebels, dreamers. Whether it's in the sciences, the arts, education, business, or technology, we study greatness to unlock our own greatness. Because at the College of Charleston, we prepare leaders, not followers. We believe that originality is the best way to stand out. And you'll find that our way of thinking, like the opportunity here, is boundless.